Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Joja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities and joined by my colleagues. Giselle Donnelly, I work at the American Enterprise Institute and... Dalit Barohash, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. And today we are joined after one or two um, unsuccessful attempts, but finally thrilled to be joined by Alexander Lukashuk, um, who is currently a Reagan Fellow at the National Endowment for a Democracy and the former head of the Belarus service of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Alexander, it's great to have you um, join us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. It's an honor to be here. There's many things that we need to talk about, and though we were planning this episode for a bit, the events surrounding Belarus right now are not um, are not avoiding us in any way. There's a lot to talk about, and it's really hard to keep track. One day, a couple of weeks ago, just after the formal mutiny, Lukashenko has been saying, the dictator of Belarus has been saying that Prigozhin the head of Wagner is in Belarus, then he is wasn't in Belarus anymore. We think he's been saying that there's um, nuclear weapons, Russian nuclear weapons deployed in Belarus, and we're preparing for the Vilnius summit of NATO with an extra 1,000 troops um, in uh, and around Vilnius supposed to be protecting NATO leaders that are apparently afraid of what can come out of Belarus, including Wagner. So perhaps we can start with that. Alex, to what extent is it a surprise that we are in this context right now in which Belarus and the relationship between Lukashenko and the Wagner group becomes such a menace to a NATO summit. Yes, the NATO summit, which is probably one of the most important, or at least expectations for it, are very high events, which which is going to happen this summer, is a little bit upstaged by uh, what's happening with, with Wagner and with Russia and with, uh, uh, with Lukashenko. I think the most um, important thing is that uh, the day when we talk, Yula, it became known that Lukashenko, in fact, was playing a role of a sparring uh, a partner of Kremlin, just fulfilling the, the request, uh, not probably of even of Putin himself. It turned out that Putin met with Prigozhin uh, five days after the mutiny. And according to the sources of the French newspaper Liberation, there was even a follow-up meeting on the 1st of July. So all these months of uh, kind of a fog, who is where, why uh, uh, is Prigozhin in um, Belarus, and if so, why his uh, train, I looked at the numbers, it uh, traveled to Moscow since um, uh, allegedly it was in Minsk five times, to St. Petersburg four times, uh, to Rostov four times, um, and nobody saw Prigozhin, but he was quite okay. He was in Kremlin, he was seeing Putin, 
uh, as a part of a bigger group, 35 people, uh, different generals, and a smaller group, allegedly only with the FSB people, uh, security, state security services, and Russian guards. So this dynamics kind of puts aside the idea of, of mutiny as an immediate political threat. And that's one of the major points where we find ourselves uh, today on the eve of, of the NATO. As far as we can say, that may not be quite a surprise information for the people responsible for the security of the summit in Vilnius. Uh, we know that the communications between Minsk and, uh, and, and Moscow were monitored uh, by, by the Western intelligence services, and it was kind of on intention, I, be, I believe, uh, publicized. Alex, you know, this is like such a crazy set of events over the last several weeks. And Lukashenko, his role, you know, can be interpreted almost any way you wish. I'd really like to hear sort of how what your take is on this and, you know, sort of what are we to make of this? I mean, you mentioned him as sort of a tag team partner for, for Putin. But, you know, it could be just as easily the case that, you know, he was kind of an uninformed, if not innocent, bystander who, you know, just got yanked into the role of, I, I don't even know if he did any actual mediation, but he just sort of became the framework for what, all these negotiations. And every time we learn one of, a little bit more about the story, it's like, you know, the prototypical case where you turn on the kitchen lights in the middle of the night and all the cockroaches go scuttling to uh, to their corners and to their holes. So I, I've, you know, I've never been a criminologist and I have no intention of ever becoming one. But if you could sort this out, just uh, tell us what your understanding is of the events of the affair Progozhin. Let me state maybe one uh, quite obvious uh, framework. The system which... Putin has built, uh, as well as Lukashenko, was based on loyalty. Loyalty is the most important um, category there. But when, when you have a war, when you start such a huge operation as war, loyalty is not enough. You need effectiveness. And loyalty and effectiveness, they kind of contradict each other. They don't coincide. That was the dilemma which Putin and, and Lukashenko face in many spheres, in, in economy, in international relations. Uh, loyalty and effectiveness are not the same, but they always prefer uh, loyalty. So this, the whole mutiny thing which happened, I think the first Putin's prime minister, Mikhail Kasyanov, uh, was very blunt at the very beginning. He said, uh, this is a private conflict between Putin and Prigozhin. It was a little bit surprised. It's kind of a because in a totalitarian kind of state, you don't have private initiatives. Everything is political, even sports is political, of course. But he insisted that it is private, and I couldn't understand his logics. But he said, you see, it's kind of a criminal framework. You promise something, in this case, ammunition, shells, uh, support, and you haven't delivered. And uh, it's not about the law. It's not um, about some, some manuals. It's about the promises. And this promise between, in criminal mind, are, are sacred. And that is what, the, that was the conflict about. And they, they couldn't talk directly because it will kind of uh, denigrate both players. So they need somebody who could do talking for them. It's all, uh, anybody who follows the criminal, I wouldn't call it establishment, but rules, 
uh, knows that that's how it happens, uh, at least uh, in, in Russia. They talk with the help of intermediaries, and only then, after everything is settled, they kind of uh, find a, a solution. So Cassiano was quite straight in this. He said, what we're seeing is a deal being developed. Now, coming back to Lukashenko. Lukashenko's got some, some gains, of course, in this situation. All of a sudden, he became a peacemaker. If you looked at the Belarus TV mass media coverage of what happened after the first day of Prigozhin's uh, march, you would see that he was called basically a savior of Russia, of savior of Russia from civil war, of savior of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives. But that's how Belarusian media presented him. In, in Russian media, it was much more muted. His role was much more narrow. They spoke about him, but it was always underlined that it was on the request of President Putin, that he did Putin, uh, Putin's bidding. It was always kind of a, that it was not his initiative. So there were two different narratives. And these narratives kind of uh, reached, interestingly, to Ukraine. Ukraine, uh, Secretary of the uh, National Council uh, for Security and Defense, uh, Alexei Danilov, even said that Lukashenko maybe in the future can take some part, some role play in the peace talks. Uh, so at some point, his, his, his role of a peacemaker of 2014 was remembered. So Lukashenko created for himself a little bit of space, a little bit an image of, of uh, independent, uh, independent player. This is a very dangerous role uh, when you are uh, close, uh, close to Putin. So he basically tried to play, to play back very fast, saying no one is a hero here, neither me, no Prigozhin, no Putin. And he uh, trying to tone it down uh, very quickly. Alex, uh, it's such a fascinating framing that you that you that you give us of of, of this being an instance of criminal deal making, and it it makes appear Russia even much stranger than it had ever been sort of appearing to to us. I want to just read to you a tweet from this morning from from BBC Steve Rosenberg, which which I found endlessly entertaining, where he says the story so far there was a mutiny, but it was over in a day. But Russian Air Force pilots were killed, but no one was arrested. But the Kremlin denounced the mutineers as traitors. But five days later, Prigozhin and Wagner commanders were in the Kremlin talking to Putin. All clear? End of quote. So, so just to just to sort of reiterate on that on that strangeness. I mean, like what what you know, like what what the weirdness like of this tweet suggests, and what what your framing suggests is that Russia, in fact, is not a state, right? It's not the sort of barbarian structure that has monopoly of coercive power over a certain territory, right? It's a sort of competing mafias with a, on, on, on a territory that just happened to be right now in a sort of state of anarchic equilibrium of, of sorts, which may be very fragile. And and I think we have to sort of brace ourselves for the prospect of, of this sort of equilibrium being being sort of disturbed and, and, and going in a very sort of, you know, dangerous directions perhaps. But I wanted to ask you, and feel free to sort of you know, push back on this or, or comment on that, but I also wanted to ask you about the role of the Belarusian opposition 
in these in this current event. So we've all been very impressed by by Besvetla Tsikhanouskaya, whom we hosted at AI uh, some 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 months ago, and by I mean the sort of dedication of the United Belarusian opposition to you know articulating an alternative to the to to the regime and 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 pushing for a sort of legal recognition of of the opposition and and preparing the groundwork for a you know democratic transition once this strange period of Belarusian history is over. But but what do you th- think they are doing right now what they should be doing and how much leverage they can have at all over what's happening inside of Belarus especially given you know the, the weirdness of the predicament that, that, that we are faced with I think uh, your remark about that uh, Russia is not a state has so many fascinating uh, topics coming from it which affect of course international and internal situation and directly affect the future. But coming back to Belarus, Svetlana Tikhanovska, I agree with you, uh, has managed uh, to, to run an extremely impressive operation. For, for all my 30 years with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, I've never seen uh, an opposition, an opposition, it's not even operation, kind of a cabinet uh, being so uh, effective and being so impressive. It just shows the talent which is there and all of a sudden it, it, it uh, just flourishes the, the moment you, you give it a little, a little freedom, a little oxygen. In this particular case, you see, the problem is how do you react to a thing like, like that uh, pseudo-mutiny in Russia? It is, on the one hand, you have to react. It's a big thing. It's because you have to understand and to explain. Is it just a crack in the window? Is, is it a show or is it something serious? On the other hand, to give a reaction which is kind of a, a little bit longer than immediate reaction with, with some perspective, the mutiny should have been longer. You see, it was over too fast. It's almost impossible to react to something which was uh, so fast in a meaningful long-term, long-term way. It's the work for analytics or observers, commentators, but not for the political force. She did react. Her, her, her people issued a statement saying that the Belarus should draw back, reject all the so-called union treaties which Belarus has with Russia, with the common defense, which is a, not a new idea, which is been, has been repeated many times, but it was timely. And it was um, a correct, correct reminder that the longer you stay dependent on, on Russia uh, or kind of tied to Russia, of course, the more dangerous it is for Belarusian independence, to say nothing of the Belarusian internal situation. You see, we're talking uh, here about uh, Prigozhin, but I really what I think is more important to talk is about this situation of just Gestapo, uh, what Belarus has turned into, with people being tortured, persecuted, denigrated, humiliated and, and, and pressured, being changed, in fact, uh, in, into something almost, almost slaves, because even the freedom of movement is now being curtailed. And uh, that is what's happening in Belarus, with um, almost all uh, Western ambassadors having left the country. The level of diplomatic presentation is downgraded. Now Ukrainians also left, uh, there is no ambassador, Germans left. So the, 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 level, the level of Belarusian uh, so-called sovereignty and independence is just there for grabs for Putin, depending what's going to happen with Ukraine and what's interesting both ways, whether 
uh, he uh, the conflict the war with ukraine ends the way putin wants or whether it ends in a different way the danger for uh, belarus uh, remains the same to make things just slightly more complicated <laughs> on the other hand when we're looking at Lukashenko, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, at least a, a majority of analysts have been pointing to the fact that he is trying to survive in a way that entails some kind of independence or autonomy from Russia, because that's his only way of survival. And so I want to ask you to make sense for us of two current or um, recent events that seem, at least on the surface, as an attempt, but I'm wondering to what uh, extent this attempt is successful, for Lukashenko to wiggle himself a little bit looser from the Kremlin, beyond the mediator role that he's trying to assume. And one is the conventional military side, um, Radio Free Europe, and I think others have also been reporting on the fact that several camps, tent camps um, that were used for training for thousands of Russian soldiers on Belarusian um, territory have been dismantled um, ever since the mutiny in a very fast manner. And we sort of expected the Wagner group to move to Belarus and do something, train there. And so the Belarusian authorities with Lukashenko managing to close these um, conventional Russian forces training camps, isn't that an act or a, a small step towards a little bit more autonomy from the Kremlin? And the other thing is the nuclear weapons. And to me, that's the most complicated thing because it seems to me that Lukashenko has been trying really hard for a while to get nuclear weapons. How does that grant him independence? And the last note here is the comment that I thought was worth reproducing that he made when asked somewhat recently about whether Belarus, whether he can confirm that Belarus is now hosting Russian nuclear weapons on his territory. And he says, yes, we are offering, Belarus is offering protection for these nuclear weapons. Uh, Julia, it's uh, a very murky situations in each of these questions, uh, in each of these topics which you're which you mentioned, and I believe it's it's murky on purpose. But let's let's do it step by step. First of all, what Lukashenko has, his main capital, his main most precious possession, he owns the state. In the today international system, if you have a state, it's much more important that you have uh, $100 billion or how many Elon Musk has or whoever billionaires, because with the state, you have uh, in the perestroika there was a uh, under Gorbachev there was a joke just give me one meter of the state border and I will build you a golden monument he has a whole state and uh, that gives him uh, in Europe of all places the real estate is fantastic in the center of Europe on the border with Russia and with the Western Europe is not too, too heavy one's own state is it's, it's, it's priceless so that's uh, as long as he has it the, the, his value and his position is, is quite is quite stable, I'm, I'm afraid. In terms of the camps, um, there's an alternative explanation. Russia has finally started building its own camps. 
they don't need uh, Belarusians any longer. They are able to start training in there because that was the capacity issue in the beginning of the war. Wagner, uh, role of Wagner fighters in Belarus was touched upon by by Lukashenko in a couple of ways, saying that maybe 5,000, 8,000 of them, or maybe just a couple of hundreds who will train Belarusian. But looks like it's uh, more... Uh, but he always also said that basically it depends on Wagner what they want to do. So uh, he was well aware what was going on uh, about meetings of Prigozhin and Putin, and that uh, if they needed his help as a state to give some legal framework, as they use the word, uh, to issue them passports or logistics to fly all over the world to Asian or African countries where uh, Wagner was uh, operating, yes, he could provide that. Uh, that that was not um, a big issue. But looks like the Wagner group would not uh, would not need it. Uh, whatever uh, stays of, of it in the field, they 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 could do it from from the Russian territory. Now the nuclear weapons. The nuclear nuclear weapons is interestingly. Uh, an issue and a non-issue at the same time. You see, uh, when asked directly about that by, by the group of, internet, of um, foreign journalists uh, a week ago, he staged a, press a rare press conference for them. He said, well, why uh, other European uh, Ukrainians are using foreign weapons uh, supplied by, by other countries in there. So we can use also, uh, we can have, why cannot, cannot we have nuclear weapons? It's a logic uh, which is uh, kind of okay as long as you don't use the word no nuclear. But speaking in terms of context, since 2009, I believe five European non-nuclear countries have nuclear weapons on their territory. Belgium, Netherlands, I believe Spain, Italy and Germany. Uh, it's operated or, or owned by the United States, but it is placed there. It's so-called tactical weapon. Moving uh, nuclear weapons to Belarus in terms of uh, military goals or objectives or defense needs uh, doesn't change absolutely nothing, neither for Belarus nor for Russia. Uh, Russia has already moved its nuclear weapons to Kaliningrad. Oh, Krolovets, as now uh, Poland calls it. It's a tactical weapon, weapons, and um, in terms of, of distance, they can reach the same uh, goals as from Belarus, so nothing changes in, in these words. So what is left is something different, is an attempt to influence, I believe, Western public opinion and to influence uh, Western politicians. There was an interesting episode, uh, I think last, uh, last, uh, yeah, last month, there was a declaration by Putin and uh, Chinese leader Xi Jinping about, about nuclear weapons, that they should not be moved, they should stay. And then three days la later, Putin said, yes, we are discussing moving nuclear weapons, uh, agreeing with Lukashenko to move to Belarus. It was a, a very strange two statements in, in the space of three days. And there's only one explanation that uh, Putin uh, want his Chinese counterpart, that that will be the rhetoric, but probably the weapons will not be moved. Or if they are moved, they will never be used, or Lukashenko will have no control over them. So China's, China, which is also a part of this discussion about so-called nuclear weapons in, in, in Belarus, is a, is a very interesting factor. During that time, Lukashenko also made an unexpected trip to Beijing, where he spent think, two or three days. And uh, that was uh, the time when Beijing tried to 
propose their own so-called peace plan. But the first, of course, point is uh, stop fighting, which was not acceptable at all and didn't go very far so far. So these are elements are all in play, but in, uh, not in a militaristic way, not in a military way, but in a political, uh, I would say, dimension. Alex, I wonder if we could quiz you for a bit about your perhaps more more scholarly work on the intersection of politics and history and these questions of, of historic memory in, 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 in Central and Eastern Europe on what you call the sort of democratic and totalitarian views of history and, and, and historic memory. Clearly, this is a part of the world that has a very difficult history, which is right now, it seems to me, slightly overshadowed by a little sort of Eastern European sense of kumbaya, driven by the fact that we all, you know, fear Russia and, and, and dislike Putin's Russia and want to keep it at bay. But there are painful, difficult episodes from the past. And, and just to illustrate that, uh, I was struck over this weekend by, by the images of Presidents uh, Duda and Zelensky in the Western Ukrainian uh, city of Lutsk, commemorating the Polish victims of, 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 of Ukrainian nationalist massacres during the Second World War that, that killed tens of thousands. And there is some debate about whether those that episode constituted an act of genocide or not. But but sort of seeing these two democratic leaders kind of you know confronting this this painful episode of 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 of, of their common history to me was very striking, very different from how these questions tend to be approached in more autocratic environments by by politicians. I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about you know, how you, how significant you see this particular episode in, in isolation, but also in the context of, you know, what might be other fracture points in among, you know, in the relations of, of, of these Eastern European nations, Belarusians, Poles, Lithuanians, Ukrainians. And do you see those, those perhaps tensions or, or painful episodes from the past being confronted in the coming years? Actually, may, may I ask at a footnote, to Dalibor's question, uh, in addition to talking about uh, historical memory, I, I, Dalibor, I noted that meaning as well. That's made me one think that there was also a, a sense of historical imagination at work. One that so we were kind of at a moment where people are willing to look back, but the purpose is also to frame a future and to try to come to grips with the past because there is an opportunity to create a different future. And certainly in, I think many in the West have sort of begun to understand Poland and Ukraine as being at that moment. But certainly from my point of view, thinking about Belarus in that way is is equally important. Uh, you know, if the, if the Russian imperial exercise is to end, it well ought to include Belarus. So again, just I'd ask Alex to both inform us of his his work on historical memory, but also to try to translate it uh, in a forward-looking way. You know, of course, we all remember the, the famous Orwell's formula, uh, who controls the, the, the past controls the future, uh, who controls um, the present controls uh, the past. I thought uh, quite intensely about this, this statement saying, isn't there something wrong with it? Or what is it about, actually? doesn't still work uh, 70 years after it was uh, formulated. And, you know, if you, uh, the most frequent word in this formula is not past, is not present, is not future, it's control. 
four times. He says controls, controls, controls. Controls, of course, is about power. So this is one of the formulas of, of political uh, power. In, in, and in this, uh, in this respect, uh, you can say there's nothing new because it's power has, has always been um, this multifaceted and was always about uh, trying to prolong now and uh, autocracies always live in now. They, they don't have the past. Their past begins um, they, when they come to power. They kind of, all their pre predecessors are always wrong. So it's um, only now and, and going forward. You can, by the way, change the word um, who controls the present with internet. Who controls internet, he controls the past, he controls the, the, the future. It's a technology, a new game uh, in the town, which is, uh, which is now, of course, um, uh, happening on our... Uh, Putin, uh, when he looked for a reason, pretext, to, to attack Ukraine, he used so-called historical facts published an article in Izvestia, as you remember, two years ago, and he, um, Russia tried to present it as the war for the true history, which was uh, stolen by, uh, by bad Ukrainians, by Nazis. In Belarus, last year, 2022, the most important thing for that year was all of a sudden history. On the first working day of 2022, Lukashenko signed a, a decree on the 3rd of January, declaring the year 2022 the year of uh, historical memory. That uh, the idea was we have to enhance this historical memory to unite people, which was kind of a, a little bit unexpected, but understandable. Russia was amassing its troops on the border with Ukraine, Russian troops were in Belarus, so anything which could help national identity or remember who you are was helpful. But then three days later, he signed a law, and the law was called on the genocide of the Belarusian people. All of a sudden, in 2022, a law was adopted, which uh, declared that the, from 1941 to 1951, during these 10 years, were years of the genocide of the Belarusian people. And the law punished any interpretation of the history of the Second World War, or what's happened after that, with up to 10 years in prison. It's so-called direct memory law, which prescribes how to view historical events and how to discuss them. What was interesting, of course, was that immediately there was a role of the Office of Prosecutor General in history. You cannot talk about history without the uh, prosecutors. And a couple of months later, uh, last uh, June, the, the Prosecutor General of Belarus went on a book tour. He and his uh, office of the prosecutor published a book which was called the same as the law on the genocide of the Belarusian people. And remember, the law said it is 1941-1951. By the way, uh, uh, these authoritarian regimes always take liberty with, with, with dates. So the first almost two years of the World War I were, yeah, were kind of uh, dismissed as they didn't exist. And then seven more added. What was dismissed, of course, is Molotov, Regenstrop, Act, which is now a genius of diplomacy, uh, things like that. But the book, he went on a book tour and all of a sudden he said, this book also includes episodes from 2020, from the elections of 2020, from protests. The genocide of the Belarusian people, its concept now includes peaceful protests against uh, rigged elections of 2020. And this uh, prosecutor general even said, what happened in 2020 was a direct result that we didn't teach our youth the history in the proper uh, way. So if you uh, need an example from straight from the horse's mouth, 
That is uh, the way uh, these regimes look at the history, as a very practical, very current political tool in, in power struggle, nothing more. Uh, this year, by the way, is also has a title. And what do you think uh, a year when a nuclear weapon is being returned to Belarus or the war criminal uh, Prigozhin is being welcomed to Belarus? Of course, this year can have only one name, the year of peace. Uh, in Belarus, it's officially year of peace this year. Politics of memory is never about memory. It's always about power. And in this context, it's always about future. You, Dalibor, mentioned um, it's, it's important to use correct, of course, terms and words when we describe so you, uh, about, about what, are, what are we in fact seeing on that territory now in Russia? Is it a state? What kind of state? But that mutiny, whatever you call it, I think shed light on, on, on the future, at least midterm future, of democracy in Russia. There will be no elections. There will be no civil society. The conflicts or power struggle between the regions, between elites, between different professional groups will not be uh, resolved in any way of democratic manner. It will be resolved in the manner Prigozhin was resolving his conflict with the state. There will be a lot of this type of fighting, criminal agreements, disagreements, infights, but there will be no place for a democratic expression of power. I think that's the most important lesson or outcome of, of this Prigozhin's journey, which not a month even yet, but we already, it, it already showed the, the, the future and challenges for possible democratic development of, of Russia and, and Belarus. We have just maybe a couple more minutes time. And so I want to ask you to wrap up because you gave us this almost philosophical um, overview of Lukashenko and the war. Um, if for Lukashenko, the looking at the region 2022 was the year of historical memory contextualized also with Putin's interpretation, um, as you eloquently pointed out, and 2023 is connected to the nuclear weapons and in a very paradoxical way, peace. What about 2024? Um, and I guess that's a twofold question, 2024 through the eyes of Lukashenko, that's a challenge in itself. But, but from your perspective, too, we will be, I think for most analysts now, if not for all, it's pretty clear that the chances of the war ending this year are slim. And so when you're looking into 2024, is that marking for you a possible end of the war? And what will that make out of Belarus then? Uh, I think you a little bit touched on the 2024 because, of course, it's a year of so-called presidential elections in, in Russia. Uh, you see, uh, Russia came up uh, with this technology, which they call in Russian abnulenie, zeroing up or starting from from a zero starting from zero when they uh, you cancel constitution and you start counting new presidential terms from the moment new constitution uh, kicks in that it's like uh, Humpty Dumpty you know when he says words mean whatever I, I want them to mean Lewis got it uh, exactly exactly right the Lukashenko for Lukashenko as well as for many, uh, for Putin, but for Lukashenko the main goal is survival. Survival, staying in power, and probably outlasting Putin. 
both politically and physically. That's, uh, I mentioned physically because both men are in their 70s. They um, didn't live the, the most healthy, didn't have the most healthy lifestyle during their, their, their years. And it's, uh, we already saw during the Brezhnev year, years and his successes, how so-called gerontocracy in, in the authoritarian systems, it's not effective at all. And uh, you know, even to keep loyalties, you have to be effective in a way. But that's his, his main goal. There's no love lost between uh, Lukashenko and Putin, but uh, he, he will try to do everything, of course, to, to outlast him. There is still a slight opening for him in the so-called Union State. If, if Putin, for some reason, leaves that position, either because of natural causes or because of political causes, there's, of course, uh, this so-called platform, which is called Union State, and there is a head of Union State. And uh, Lukashenko tried it once during Yeltsin years to get, to get an upper hand, but was pushed back. And, uh, but there is always this uh, possibility. His soft power in Russia quite impressive in regions in in local newspapers he's quite popular and he he keeps his support there on quite decent level not like putin but he's always probably the second most popular uh, politician in in russia not only in russia i must say the same was in ukraine he was for many years uh, after 2014 uh, the most popular foreign politician in in ukraine 2024 was, will be the year of elections, not uh, only in, um, of course, in, in Russia. There will be already political uh, campaigns in the United States, in other Western countries. So this will be uh, a year when discussions in Vilnius, which are taking place these days, will have enormous historical, in fact, significance. The way the Vilnius summit of NATO plays out the decisions which are announced and the decisions which are goals which are, will be stated there, they may have probably bigger, uh, bigger significance uh, than we thought uh, even a month earlier or two months earlier. That's where uh, the future of the region, the interests of democracy in, in Europe and I wouldn't say in the United States to such an extent, but um, that's the place where to look and to listen and to pay attention to. Vilnius is becoming the capital of the future during the next um, couple of weeks. Before we depart, Alex has made me even more nervous about the proceedings at Vilnius, super nervous about the even minuscule prospect that Lukashenko could emerge in 2024 as the uh, the new czar uh, of the, the Russia-Belarus uh, Union. And even more frightening that Lukashenko could get in a uh, macho competition with Putin because I don't want to see him with his shirt off under any circumstances. <laughs> so I, I, I thought it was important to add a couple notes of absurdity to what was otherwise a quite profound podcast. Alex, I'm sorry for having a, a crazy imagination, but I appreciate your time. And now back to planet Earth. Alexander Lukashuk, thank you so much for joining us today. From me, Yulia Zhoja, and my friends. This is Al Donnelly and Talbot Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. 
To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod in one word and sign up for the newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and goodbye.